Welcome to Anxiety and the Artist, the podcast that explores artists' relationship with anxiety, offering insight and inspiration. I'm your host, Allison Schaff. My guest today is Matthew Allen Wilson. Matthew is an Emmy Award-winning TED speaker and a tactical arts consultant. As a supervising clown doctor with the first professional medical clown program in the United States, Matthew brought joy and delight to critical care environments at top research hospitals in the country. He's also a professional sword swallower with a degree in biophysics from Vassar College. After completing his graduate degree in performance studies from NYU, he formed a tactical arts consultancy, implementing research-based strategies from the arts to improve staff and patient experiences in a variety of care settings. He also teaches career communication and personal branding to the next generation of business leaders at the Fordham Gabelli School of Business in New York City. Matt, welcome to the Thanks show. Thanks so much. You forgot to uh, mention that The Advocate dubbed me a bisexual medical clown turned minister and internet sensation. Yes. Some of you might have seen the video that went viral of a couple getting married during quarantine on a New York City street while a friend officiated from his apartment window. Well, that friend was Matt. Um, we have a link to the video on the Anxiety and the Artist website that you guys can check out. So, Matt, um... Tell us a little bit about your background and how anxiety has played a role in your life. Sure. Well, let's see. I'm a military brat, um, which means my dad was in the Air Force. So I grew up I grew up navigating that uh, first day of school anxiety again and again and again. In fact, I went to three different first grades on two different continents. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So um, so to a certain extent, that anxiety of being the stranger, the outsider is, is something that I've, I've always navigated without necessarily even identifying it as anxiety per se. Right. So grew up in the military and uh, moved back to the States as a sophomore in high school. And so I'd been outside of the country for about nine years. And then uh, I, uh, I didn't know if I wanted to be a clown or a doctor. I went to, to Vassar College and I was pre-med because I wanted to be a pediatrician in the Air Force. But I also was really interested in being a clown. Um, and so I, I started a juggling group at Vassar, which is actually still ongoing. That's my legacy, the Barefoot Monkeys. And, uh, but I was also a New York State certified emergency medical technician. And I would respond to emergencies on my unicycle because I got there faster <laughs> than the ambulance. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I, I applied to medical school. I applied to clown college. I took the MCATs. I finished my degree in biophysics. Uh, my thesis actually was on spinal cord injury research. I was looking at the effects of externally applied electrical fields on leech nerve cells. You know, as you do. As one does. Yeah. And then I moved to New York to be a, a medical clown with the first professional clown doctor or medical clown program in the country, as well as uh, be a performing artist. Amazing. And um, I know you got into experimental theater at one point. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, part uh, from my perspective, being a theater clown or with that kind of a background, that's a physical theater uh, thing or, or, or an approach to theater. And so physical theater has always been really important to me. And I was inspired by the work of the Polish laboratory theater experiments, uh, Grotowski, and all of which influenced the contemporary theater movement in this country in the 60s and 70s. So a lot of the ensemble theater experiments in New York City 
uh, came from that tradition. And I thought it was fascinating. I was always more interested. My wife and I would get into arguments, conversations about the outside in versus the inside out approach to performance. I really like the physical side of things and, 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 and experimenting from that place. And she really appreciates the, the emotional journey of the artist. And there's, you know, there's room for both and it's usually a combination, right? So uh, it's funny, uh, I'd say in addition to being a medical clown, I was also pursuing work in experimental ensemble-based musical theater, which isn't really a thing, and yet I found it. (laughs) I think the best ideas and jobs come from realizing a need or a gap in the industry and then creating something to fill that gap. So what did that teach you about anxiety? You, you had an experience with a physical therapist that taught oh, you yeah, something, Oh, yeah, sure. Right? So, I mean, something that I think, um, so so artists and actors are like some of the original freelancers, right? Like these days, the freelance economy, the notion of a gig economy has kind of entered the mainstream, right? Uh, and it's funny because as a performing artist living in New York City, uh, anytime I told people what I did, uh, often people would say, oh, well, isn't that hard? And I said, well, I mean, Yes and no. You know, I, I really like looking for work. And, and I bring that up to say I, I am the lifestyle of an actor, of a gigger, of a vagabond, uh, of an itinerant individual. A, that that's kind of how I grew up, right, as, as a globetrotting military brat. So that wasn't new. And then as a performing artist looking for work, I embrace the fact that there is inherent instability and I don't know where my next paycheck's coming from, Right. So, so just to say, I actually didn't, that didn't stress me out, or at least I didn't recognize that as a form of stress or anxiety uh, mm-hmm. until uh, I, uh, I, I just developed some neck pain. You know, I, I've been a physical theater artist my entire career, and, and I've been engaged or resulted in a, a myriad of injuries, right? You're like, you get hurt. You just do. And so you got aches and pains and stuff like that. But I never had any neck or back issues, and, and that kind of concerned me because um, it can really, you know, knock you out, even if it's somewhat minor. So I went to see an osteopath. I think it was, I was lucky because I got to see someone probably at the Harkness Center, which is a, um, a hospital practice uh, in the city that really focuses on artists and dancers. Because something I've, I've discovered as a performing artist, it's really important to find healthcare practitioners that understand how you use your body. Because the way we use our body is, it's, it's, there's, that's what our, that's what, how we make our money, right? Like if your body's out of commission, then you can't even look for work. So right. um, went to see the osteopath and they recommended PT, which was great. And I lucked out because my physical therapist happened to have been from Poland and was actually uh, <laughs> trained in the Polish theater laboratory techniques. He was a stunt person. I couldn't believe my luck. I'm like, oh, we're going to get along fine. Yeah. Right. So he's working on me, doing a little bit of massage, and he's just kind of checking in. He's like, so are you, are you under a lot of stress? And I don't know if you've noticed this about me. I tend to be fairly upbeat. I'm, I'm, I pride myself on that. You know, I am a fairly – I'm a realist, but I'm an optimist uh, or a realistic optimist, optimistic realist. I don't know what I am. But I have a lot of energy, and, um, and I, I did not consider – I didn't feel stressed, so to speak right? Uh, life was good mm-hmm. in that I am living the life that I choose to live. Sure, my body was feeling kind of funky, but uh, I, I told him, no, I'm not under any stress. Even though I wasn't necessarily employed at the moment and I didn't know where my next paycheck was going to come from, I wasn't stressed about that. It was all going to work out. So then he said, so how's your sleep? And I thought about it and I said, well, I'm actually not sleeping that well. You know, I'd say there were several years 
off and on, depending on what was going on in my life, or I would put a considerable amount of time and energy and effort to, uh, in order to be able to sleep, right? Like whether it's a routine, uh, turning down the lights, getting off devices. Uh, so, so sleep was, you know, touch and go at that point. Um, and, and then he said, well, are you having any nightmares? And I thought about it. And I'm like, well, actually, just that week, I'd had a dream where I was back in our first apartment in Jersey City, and all my friends were being shot. I would, there was ethnic cleansing going on in our neighborhood. And so in my nightmare, I was seeing my friends um, assassinated on my doorstep. And so I thought, well, yeah, I guess that does count. I'm not sleeping so well. I'm having these nightmares. He says, it sounds like you're under some stress. And so I guess that that just helped me frame the notion that you can be under humans are extremely adaptable, right? Like we are extremely adaptable, which both works to our advantage, but also means we could be uh, experiencing stress and anxiety. And the weird thing is not necessarily be aware of the toll it's taking on us in the long run. Mm -hmm. Out of curiosity, it's because you've, you're so accustomed to the gig lifestyle, um, have you ever had a like permanent full-time job? And did that give you a tremendous amount of anxiety as a it's result? It's funny. Um, you know, I didn't want a full-time regular job until recently. And at the beginning of March, okay. I got my first full-time job. And then two weeks later, New York City got shut down due to the pandemic. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, did that give me... I think, I think it's similar to like the first day of school. There was anxiety around... Mm -hmm. Uh, a new routine and a commute. Uh, I was, uh, I've, I've never been a commuter, you know? And so mostly mm -hmm. it's just that anxiety of commuting in New York city where now you have a schedule and you have to clock in. So, so I guess, I mean, often when, when I think in terms of anxiety, I think there is anxiety that is helpful and or healthful. And that is a signal. I mean, it's all a signal, right? That we should be paying attention to. Mm -hmm. um, and, Sometimes it's just a, something that you navigate and sometimes it's paralyzing and you're like, cool, what's going on here and what's the pattern? Absolutely. Recognizing when anxiety is serving you or hurting you is key and being able to differentiate between the two. Um, switching gears. Four years ago, you attended a Black Lives Matter protest that made a lasting impression on you. Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, sure. I was really fortunate because I had a friend who was also a very uh, politically engaged and an academic and was willing to introduce me to her friends and her community. And, uh, I, and I attended a protest with her. It was interesting because at the time I was in jury duty. And so um, I was trying to ample. I couldn't attend any protests that week because of jury duty. This was four years ago. And so I was attempting to amplify some of the messaging and get it out. And then I actually got kicked off the jury for sending tweets out about the protests. It was really interesting. So I learned a lot just about our justice system and the jury duty and, and what it's like to navigate that. Um, but because I got kicked off the jury... Uh, the next day, I was able to participate in a protest. And the interesting thing was, uh, it was a rally first down by City Hall. And then we walked up Broadway to Union Square. And then from Union Square on, uh, there was a lot of police violence. And people were getting pushed off the sidewalks into the streets. And I ended up running through the streets with my friends being chased by police and riot gear 
for a peaceful protest. And so I learned a lot about, well, A, what what is a protest? What uh, does it mean to take the streets? What does police brutality look like in person? And it, and it really stuck with me. It changed my relationship uh, with how I see the police presence in New York City. And how has that how has that affected you? Just walking around the city and seeing a cop. Sure, on the street? Does I that, was really lucky. Do you have any physical reaction? Yeah, absolutely, to that? I, I was really lucky because I'm a white guy, right? And so my relationship with um, a police is very different from someone who's not white. And so I'm just really, really grateful for that experience because. That, that changed my perception of how the police can operate in the city. And, and it's actually was an experience that I, I really wish more people had. You know, at one point I had this big vision of creating an event uh, uh, inside a theater where uh, there was a protest happening outside and everyone in the theater was then invited to join the protest and to end up getting chased by police on the streets because... I really do believe the anxiety that that evokes is enough to really change your worldview. Right. And if that's how, what you experienced as a white person, how does, how does that affect a person of color on a daily basis? Like that's what they live with on a daily basis. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fraction, right? It's a sliver. Um, but it was, I just, I'm so appreciative for that experience. Coming up, Matt talks about being a medical clown and the importance of play in our adult lives. So you also work as a medical clown. Yeah, I was a medical clown for almost Tell 10 us years. about that. Yeah, <laughs> that sure. is probably, that is just so fascinating and unique to me. So please oh, tell us you. about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I worked for almost 10 years uh, with the clown care program, the first professional medical clown program in the country. It used to be affiliated with the Big Apple Circus. And medical clowning is a global field. And there's actually a significant body of research that demonstrates its impact, both on patients and staff and family members. And I actually, I I got to, uh, I was invited to join the the TED organization as a resident. And so I got to do a TED talk about the health benefits of medical clowning because they are pretty significant. And so basically as a performing artist, I would be in the hospital with my partner and we have full reign over the hospital. And it was our role to um, first seek consent, yes, permission before you enter someone's space. And then the emphasis is empowerment of the pediatric patient. And it's basically an improvisational encounter uh, where the goal is to kind of discover, meet the patient where they're at and get, you know, see what uh, see what happens. And is that something that um, is prevalent in a lot of hospitals or was this unique to, you worked at Sloan Kettering, correct? Yeah, good question. I was at several hospitals. Our program operated in New York City at multiple hospitals, including uh, Harlem Hospital, which is part of New York City Health and Hospitals, the largest public healthcare system in the country. Uh, we were at Mount Sinai at the time, Memorial Sloan Kettering, Columbia Presbyterian, New York Presbyterian before they merged. Um, yeah. Oh, up at Yale New Haven, Long Island, LIJ. Uh, we also ended up at a VA hospital working with adults and uh, St. Barnabas in New Jersey. And then the, our program also was in Boston and DC and where, oh, Baltimore, Atlanta, Georgia. 
And then uh, several people who had trained in that program in the 90s into 2000 spread uh, around the world. So there are programs, some of which started with artists who trained in New York City, but they're in France, Germany, Holland, Brazil, Israel, Australia. Yeah, it's, it's everywhere. And did you primarily work with children or did you work with adults and children? Sure. So our funding was primarily for pediatric hospitals. So my initially my training was with uh, the pediatric population. And then the cool thing is, um, as time went on, uh, well, our program started experimenting with uh, elder care, dementia care, memory care, and, and VA facilities. And then that has also uh, been explored around the world in Australia and um and in Holland and, and Scandinavia. Uh, so there are programs that have since expanded to include the elder population. And, and I've expanded some of my work in the past to do some of that too. Cool. So you now work as a tactical arts consultant. Can you tell us what that is and what that involves? Yeah, sure. So something that I learned as a medical clown uh, or something I'm really passionate about is how can you use research-based arts practices to change an environment, whether it's an institution, in my case, it was a hospital, right? And so I decided I wanted to expand my view outside of medical clowning, and what would that look like? And so I created a tactical arts consultancy uh, where the goal is to use research-based arts practices and strategies in institutional spaces like hospitals and elder care facilities to change the environment of care for uh, patients and providers. Fantastic. And how does your master's play into that? Sure. So I, I went back to school to get a master's in performance studies. And the reason I chose performance studies was because as I was looking at um, medical clowning and play uh, and performance, that all actually came within the umbrella of performance studies. There's interesting scholarship on medical clowning that is actually done by scholars of performance studies. And um, I take play very seriously. Uh, I'm currently working on a writing project, uh, play for adults, because adults are really bad at play. They don't really know how to play. It's not necessarily their fault. Uh, but uh, if we expect children to play or to create spaces for children to play, then we kind of need adults to understand what that means. And so play happens to be an area of study that uh, fell within the OVA of performance mm-hmm. studies. And, and as a matter of fact, uh, in Israel, they actually have a medical clown degree program. And the person that started that program had completed the performance studies program at NYU many, many years ago. So, Very cool. Um, So as somebody who has used play and your art to help others deal with their pain and their anxiety, what what has that taught you and what what can we take away from that? Sure. That's such a great question. I think it starts as an artist. Um, Something I do believe about artists, arts practitioners, art workers is hopefully, right? There's a a, a developed level of emotional intelligence, right? We have a lot of soft skills that are actually extremely valuable right now. And so I would say it starts there because when it came or when it comes to a medical clown encounter, I both enjoy talking about it, but it's also tricky to talk about because there are a lot of preconceived notions of what that might mean. A lot of people assume, oh, you're a medical clown, you're there to make them laugh, or oh, um, yeah, but that's not actually the case. The first thing that happens is you acknowledge the circumstances and you meet them where they're at and, and you obtain consent. Hey, can we be here together? Cool. And then 
you're not denying the reality, right? You're not a distraction. So I'm, you know, I'm at Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is a cancer hospital, one of the top cancer centers in the world. And there's no denying that the majority of people there are navigating the existential crisis of life-threatening illness, both the patient and the family and the practitioners, right? So then what do you do? Well, my first answer is I have no idea, right? There's no way of knowing what to do in that moment. You have to discover it. And I think that's also potentially what artists, where there's a strength, artists explore and they discover. And so as an artist in that environment, um, my, my goal or my role is to explore and to actually figure out and ascertain, hey, how are we going to connect right now? And who are we going to connect with? And it's in building those connections over time um, that I think actually leads to changing the environment of care. Amazing. Um, so what have you, Matt, learned about your, given all of your experience, what have you learned about yourself and what tools have you found helpful in mitigating your own anxiety? Hmm. Well, I guess it's interesting. So, you know, as a performing artist, I know, I would say all of us probably navigate performance anxiety, right? And it's funny, something that I've learned when I was invited to give a TED talk, I actually didn't want to give the TED talk. I wasn't interested in giving a TED talk. I didn't want to be on stage and I didn't want to be in front of a camera. And this is coming on the heels of an almost two decade career of being on stage, you know, or being on camera. And it was interesting going back to school, going to grad school, my focus was on the academic side of performance and the theory. I wasn't interested in the actual practice. And so because I had that shift, I now recognize and realize the value of warm up and, 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 and rehearsal and just that, that regular stuff that I think we take for granted all plays into mitigating the anxiety of performance Preparation. Say what? (laughs) Preparation is key. (laughs) Yeah, it is. But also, it's like, I mean, absolutely, I do agree with you. When I lead workshops on public speaking, the thing that I focus on definitely is preparation. Like, you can't over-rehearse. But what I also recognized about myself is, because my background was physical theater, I had a very specific physical warm-up. It would shift and change that I developed and I had for a really long time. And I actually taught it or some version of it to some of my fellow TED speakers. Um, And I realized just the act of doing that, having that practice, there was still performance anxiety, but without it, it was almost um, exponential as it were, right? Like it's almost like I'm used to, I know what to expect. Meaning when you're rehearsing a show, there's a lot of unknowns and you never know how it's going to turn out, but you know, you're going to get through it. You just do. Right. Like, well, I have a thing. I don't, I don't like one-offs. Like I don't like single gigs. I don't like single performances. I like X number of weeks of rehearsal and X number of performances. That's something I've always felt. And, um, and I think part of that is adapting to and navigating through your anxiety. Um, And so, which is just to say, Uh, As far as tools, A, um, trusting the development of a physical practice, you know, even, but the thing is then there's also a lot of peer pressure. Like the stuff I did looked weird to a lot of people, you know, a lot of actors and singers are actually not, (laughs) believe it or not, they're not physical performing artists. Dancers are, that's different. 
but a lot of singers and actors like they don't they don't actually they don't they're not in their bodies and they don't really know how to get into their bodies and they aren't comfortable in their bodies mm-hmm. um and so th- i would there were a lot of i got i got guff off and on over the years in different shows about my my own personal warm-up practices which is interesting um and then as far as like self-awareness i mean for me i feel like anxiety is a bit of a compass it's a tool i I've, I've i'm trying to learn to notice it because sometimes it's just par for the course and you're going to need to navigate it and sometimes it's like wow matt you're feeling this on a regular basis maybe you don't need to be in that environment or those circumstances Matt, thank you so much for being here today. You are so fascinating, and I'm so glad that you shared your experiences with us. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. That's our show for today. To check out Matt's TED Talk and for more information on the topics we discussed, head over to anxietyandtheartist.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks to my guest, Matthew Allen Wilson. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and share. Until next time, be healthy and stay creative. Anxiety and the Artist is produced by Grost Productions and recorded at Homestead Studios. Music and engineering is by Bosco Chef. This podcast represents the opinions of Allison Chef and her guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Thank you.